0: I think we live in a time in general where there's a real degradation of an understanding of love. From Interfaith Alliance, this is the state of belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. And the Buddha said, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. And you come to some situation, you think, here? Here too? You know? What could that possibly look like? Sharon Salzberg
1: has spent decades teaching Buddhist meditation, leading retreats and writing books, lots and lots of books. Her latest is titled Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. And she'll be back with us this week on The State of Belief.
2: Specifically, you always honor um, Lord Ganesh, who in Hinduism is a God with the elephant head, because Ganesh typically is thought of as the God who removes all obstacles from your path ahead. So you Uh want that new year to be stress free. And then once Ganesha sort of cleared the path, you'd usher in Lakshmi, who's the goddess of wealth and prosperity. And then she would sort of come and light the path and make sure that that year ahead is pretty
1: dope. This weekend is Diwali, the Hindu festival of lights. It symbolizes the spiritual victory of light over darkness, good over evil and knowledge over ignorance. We'll mark the occasion with the Hindu pundit Sushma Deveti. We are growing the state of belief Building on our 17-year history by partnering with Religion News Service, and as a part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's next generation, the State of Belief podcast that I want to make sure you are subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com/newpodcast. It would really help to have you subscribe and to tell people you are close to about the conversations you are hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can keep this show going is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest, Sushma Devedi is a Hindu pundit and a hands-on advocate for marriage equality within her own faith tradition. You can find out more about her at Purple Pundit Project. She also is the president of Ghetto Gastro, a culinary collective with a racial justice and social justice bent, and the products just hit the shelves at Target this week. This is an amazing woman, and she is gonna help illuminate and celebrate uh, the important Hindu celebration of Diwali, which is taking place Sunday, November 12th, just as this podcast hits. So I'm really excited. Welcome to the show, Sushma.
2: Oh, Paul, that's so generous of you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: (laughs) I love the way we met, which was my two boys are really close to the boys of Reshma and Nihal. Reshma has been on this show. And they invited us to a Diwali celebration. And you were the pundit. You were the priest. And I just have this image of my kids, like, looking at these candles and hearing the stories. And it's so beautiful. So so I'm just so glad for you to be the one that can really share with our listeners, like, what is the meaning of Diwali? What's the story behind it? And then, you know, a little bit more about, like, what we can take from it.
2: First of all, nothing brings me more joy than Kids <laughs> Diwali every year. <laughs> Um, Rushman Hall kicked it off, you know, many years ago, uh, and um, I've been so fortunate as to get to help organize as we put it together every year. Um, So it's coming up (laughs) this weekend as it is. But the best part about it is being able to make any tradition and holiday interesting to your kids, right? And sort of giving them a sense of being able to pass it down and participating in it all. My kids were babies when it all got started, And so I see them take more interest now at five and seven than they did, you know, when they were just little boo boos putzing around, you know, happily coloring a little Diwali candle or whatever it was to get started. And what I really enjoy is that we've made that little. It's so grassroots. It's basically in their living rooms right. and probably always will be like a little community. And, and a wonderfully
1: mindsets. diverse crew. Like, it's, yes, you know, I was just about it, to say. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just like it, it, there's such a welcome that we all could come together to learn and celebrate together, which is just so beautiful. So, oh, it's yeah, so that,
2: wonderful. It's what it gives me. That's what gives me hope for humanity is moments like that, I will say where we we are a room full of all kinds of backgrounds and cultures and religions um, just coming together to celebrate, learn, and be together in community, which is wonderful. Um, If you trace Diwali back to its roots, it is, you know, often referred to as a Hindu festival of lights and the light factor has both physical connotation in terms of lighting candles, as well as the more, you know, spiritual factor of a victory over light, over darkness, you know, good over evil. At a triumph it's it's often referred to as hindu new year um as it is and you sort of set the clock right hinduism operates off a lunar calendar so um it's always somewhere in the october november time frame uh lately it's been closer and closer to halloween i
1: <laughs> ah, ah. um, actually
2: next year in 2024 it's on november 1st so that's going to be one heck of a few days i'm sure Right. Um, to try and organize with kids um, overall. But it's, it is celebrated by more than Hindus, I will say. You know, it, it's largely a South Asian um, celebration overall. You know, Jains observe their own Diwali. Sikhs celebrate um, Banditur Divas having to do with Singh Singhji being freed from Mughal prison. Buddhists have traditions related to Diwali as well. And so I would just say it's sort of, you know, endemic to the region around there. Right. And so as the origin tales would have it in its most authentic sort of original form or originalist if you will it had to do with lord ram returning to his kingdom in ayodhya after banishment and going to rescue his wife um sita who had been after defeating a demon and bringing her back and so when he came back to his kingdom then along with him came prosperity and that was the the joy and the triumph of good over evil. And the um, villagers and everyone lit the path for him to mm. be able to see the way and get there. And so he could see how to get home. And that's so the candles brought him home. And then along with him came prosperity. But mm. these days, it's it's tough. I'll sort of feel like you can celebrate anything at the moment right. uh, with all that's happening in the world at the same time. And I, I personally just... I find it really hard. How are you dealing being a member of of faith, you know, as it is? It's it's, it's really tough.
1: It's really hard. And, you know, you try to find these these places where where hope is emerging and continue to reach out to one another and continue to invite people into community and uh, as much as possible, be with an open heart and try to. you know, try to listen and try to learn but also try to work as much as we can for peace. And I know a lot of people have different ideas about that. But right now I'm just, you know, trying to to be in community with people and that's the reason yeah. like, you know, looking forward to a Diwali celebration, but also to recognize like there's something really important about committing ourselves to this idea of, of light and being part of a community that will bring light to the most shadowed places
2: yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. I mean, I think one of the things we've always tried to instill, and I'm sure you do the same, you know when passing down tradition, especially for for ho- high holidays and things, a few more acts of service. you know, mm. just remind remind ourselves that there's there's good to be found and and a community to serve and togetherness to be had wherever we can possibly find it,
1: right you know, as it right. is. What what are some of the rituals that if someone was um, was lucky enough to be like me and invited <laughs> to a Diwali ceremony, what would be like? What would be a way to prepare? Like what what would you? I mean, I, I as you said, it's incredibly diverse. People yeah. from so many different backgrounds, and I I've been so lucky to to have been able to participate in many different kinds because of the you know situations whether at Princeton or other places where sure. different communities were celebrating it and I could see the diversity but 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 what would be something to be looking out for and maybe something that someone might want to bring if they were coming to Diwali or just you know I'm curious like what would what would be a way that um it would be you know right to show up uh in a at a Diwali if we were if, well, if we're fortunate enough to be invited. you can always bring food <laughs> <laughs> I think that's like that is like the universal sort of for yeah. all traditions. Like Absolutely.
2: Cross culture, you can't offend anyone, you know. I mean, yeah, cross-culturally yeah. acceptable. Okay. Absolutely. I'll tell you some of the things that I feel like are always um universal human truths, right? And I'm sure it's true of, of any celebration more than the volley. But when you kick off the volley, right, you gotta clean your house. Your home mm-hmm. has to be clean, um, as mm-hmm. it is. You got and it's part of the purging, I think, if you start to right. celebrate, look for look ahead to a new year. Right. Um, and so traditionally you'd clean your house, you'd, um, you'd get together some sweets and put right. together a couple of things that you'd want to try and, and accomplish or acknowledge in the year ahead, good health, education, respect for learning, uh-huh. you know, all the things that you'd want to accomplish or like what's coming up that you'd want to usher in right as right. it is. And then as your family sort of centers around for, um, prayer or whatever ritual it is that one follows, all those things are honored. And then you offer the sweets or food or whatever you would have on a little tray to, and flowers, I guess, sometimes. Some people like to offer flowers um, to the gods above. Um, Specifically, you always honor um, Lord Ganesh, who in Hinduism is a god with the elephant head, because Ganesh typically is thought of as the god who removes all obstacles from your path ahead. So you Uh want that new year to be stress-free as much as possible, (laughs) Um, yeah. And then once Ganesha sort of cleared the path, you'd usher in Lakshmi, who's the goddess of wealth and prosperity. And then uh-huh. she was sort of come and light the path and make sure that that year ahead is pretty dope.
0: Um, mm, yeah, pretty but dope. lots of
2: food, I, I would liturg- say. Paul.
1: That pretty dope is a liturgical term. I, I'm pretty sure Indeed. that's a... <laughs> <Indeed. Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I, I think that's really beautiful. And I, I, I do think whether you observe a, a formal religious tradition, the idea of making space for something new And then actually the intentionality of, like, identifying those things and then lifting it up and whether that is to... Ganesh or to whatever your tradition is I do like the Absolutely. idea that these are these are spaces we could talk about Diwali for a long time but I do want to get you you have such an interesting way of getting in this I think that you you didn't like you you have another job you have a whole life I do. and and then I do. how did you get into this how did you become a pundit I mean I think that this is in your blood but it yes. isn't necessarily something that your parents said you must be a pundit and that's the last thing that's it you know, I mean, this is something Not you decided you had to do.
2: I did. And I sort of felt as as cliche as it may sound, I feel like I I felt a little bit of a calling. But what called me was societal change. Right. Uh-huh. And so um the, the little the little voice in my head that started to sort of talk about is there is there something I might have to offer here or is there a way, is this a path in which I might serve started to emanate for me when I was getting married myself Uh and so i've been married now i don't know 10 10 years actually it's 23 um and um my husband has a transgender sibling and it wasn't until we were getting married ourselves when this may sound so ignorant paul but i'd never really thought about what the process would look like for them if they were ever Mm. to try and find a pundit and it turns out not so great you know (laughs) i mean
0: yeah um
2: it became pretty quickly obvious that they probably wouldn't be able to find one at all so that mm. didn't sit right with me at all and so I um I started with just getting ordained on the internet and then I didn't really do much about it and then a couple of years later uh it was 2016 and the world was arguably a dumpster fire at the time and I saw mm. that um you know rights were really starting to be questioned and taken away and I was really quite fearful and I had just had our first child so I was home on maternity leave with Ashwin who's now 7 and I forget it, man. I got to do something. This, this, I can't, I can't, I, this little baby can't grow up in a world where he doesn't think everybody's equal, you know, oh, yeah. and that's not sitting right with me. So I built purple pundits website myself off of like GoDaddy.com. It's not the greatest, you know, um, most interactive site of all time, certainly. Um, but I called my grandmother. And I'm I'm lucky enough to have living grandparents, obviously in my 40s as it is. But I, um, you're right, it is in my blood. Um, my I'm, I'm from Eastern UP. My grandparents came to Canada, so my grandfather he got his PhD, and they were you know basically on the board of the very first temple, a Hindu temple in Montreal. Uh-huh. Oh, and wow. My family's from a region of India, Uttar Pradesh, UP, who that is quite I would say quite conservative and quite religious to be honest with you. And so religion was very much part of our life, you know, deeply so, deeply so. And so is ritual and tradition. So it wasn't necessarily a far leap for me to sort of venture more into the family way, if you will. But I called her and I said, listen, I really feel like I could do something here and I want to help gay people get married. I want to train more, like a little bit more effectively and, and spend some qualitative time. Will you help me? And to her credit, you know, my grandmother was very much like, huh, yes, I will help you because mm. everybody should be able to get married because everybody should have children. And, and she was like, listen, the more people out there who are getting married and having kids, the less people will be out there dating. Cause that's really the silliest part.
1: That's you one want. perspective. Yeah. That's yeah, I mean, however win. you get there. Yeah. Exactly.
2: However you get there. And so we'd spent probably about six months or so, maybe seven training, you know, mm. and um, if she didn't like my Sanskrit, She'd tell me to start again. If uh-huh. she thought that, you know, wow. I could, I could do a better job when it came to verses and scripture and interpretation, yeah. we'd take it again, you know? And yeah. so she's a tough coach, yeah. a tough yeah. coach. And so when we walked, by the time that little period of time was over, I had a pretty good sense of how I wanted to make a Hindu wedding ceremony a little bit more progressive and inclusive while still maintaining all the tenets that I knew to be beautiful and true. Yeah. So I have her to right. thank for that. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, fast forward to 2018, I was having our, our second son, Nyan, And this is such a fluke fall. But I ended up officiating a wedding in the hospital while I was in labor. Wow. And it's, it's total, total fluke would never happen again, once in a lifetime thing as it is. But uh, it went viral. And so from there, I got a lot more incoming um, wedding requests. And since then, I just had wedding number 70 in wow. october and mm-hmm. i think i've blessed seven homes and named five babies yeah. um and had one restaurant opening for Sona in new york <laughs> i That's mean I, think goes, know, I love doing stuff with families and kids the most obviously as it is
1: yeah and i think part, part of like the um you know what you say on the website purple pundit project is even being a woman and a pundit is, oh, yeah. is uh, for some people a stretch. I I grew up in a church that had a female pastor, and so for me, it was wow, like, that's you know, yeah, this was in the seventies, and, and it, it was just like I was like, oh, that's just the way it is. That's everybody has a female pastor. Yeah, but actually, we were one of the first churches to have a female pastor in the Presbyterian Church. And uh, what but country was that in? If you don't mind, it, my it was in Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin, and that's and, incredible. Yeah, yeah, but it was it was interesting because for me. That was my tradition, yeah, was having women in religious leadership roles. And now, for more people that you interact with, that's just their tradition, you know, that's what they know, you know. And I think that's the revolutionary part of it. It's like it's done in a way that's providing essential spiritual services, Mm. but it's by a woman who is open to um, all kinds of gender and all kinds of equality, and it's just done in a way that uses the tradition and brings it in the most loving way into the real lives of people. So when people are like, the tradition says, well, not mine. You know, people are always saying like, gays shouldn't be in Christianity. I'm like, well, that's not how I was raised. That wasn't my tradition. I never heard anything against gay people from the pulpit. And so like, I, I think that, you know, the people who you're working with will have an understanding of Hinduism as actually a place where they can have a home. Whereas like other people would say they can't have a home there. Well but I just think you it's know, and don't really you find important. that
2: interesting? I think that the 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 part that's always I found most fascinating, you know, the deeper I, I and longer I do this is how much gatekeeping is really at the hands of who is at the pulpit.
1: Mm. And yeah. how that
2: person interprets something.
1: Right. Yeah, so totally
2: feel, oh, scripture totally. in and of itself isn't hateful.
1: You no, no it, it is very. And I'm like, making
2: sweeping, overgeneralizations, of yeah. course, but I mean this to be true across religion as it is. But you know, the the interpretation can be so. If you are coming from a place of openness and inclusivity, you will find it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it is so true. What are what are some of the um, like Hindu great Hindu thinkers who you would like in, invite people? that we may or may not have heard of who just, just to put on our radar for like, you know, you know, this spiritual wisdom and um, anybody who, anybody come to mind that are, that have some texts that might be popular enough for like lay people who are interested in Hinduism and and want to learn.
2: You know what, Paul, rather than sort of talk about ancient texts, can I tell you about a couple people and organizations that I feel like are really current and doing some incredible work? Because oh, that's, that's a, who I try to keep up with, and that's who yeah. I'm trying to follow, and I think yeah. that's who I find personally most inspirational these days. So one of them is Hindus for Human Rights. They yes. are doing absolutely. Have you met them? Yeah,
1: Sunita. Sunita. Yeah, Sunita, yeah. I, I love them, and we they are coalition partners with us on many of our a lot of our work in uh, Washington. As DC, they should be. The they are yeah. so
2: wonderful. You know, yeah. really, really, you know, bringing an inclusive, progressive lens to Hinduism, which I so deeply appreciate. Um, yeah. I think Savana is a great organization yeah. as well. Um, I have, uh, you know, a couple of other friendly, progressive, inclusive pundits who I stay in touch with closely is Dr. Rajamathar, who's on the West Coast primarily, but some flits around a little bit. He's a global nomad, if you will. And um, I equally try to keep up with Fatima Dube. Um, she's based here around in the New York area. instead. I love the Broom Street Ganesh Temple. It's such an environment of like, wonderful peacefulness um and a great little respite in New York City. Um oh, I if love you're looking that. for a moment of peace um as yeah. it is. But I think part of the reason why I try to look at more um you know inclusive takes and how we're we're advancing Hinduism with a more progressive lens is in the hope that ultimately we can all stop describing ourselves as progressive and that will just be the norm.
1: Oh, listen you don't have to talk to me about you that know? In my you know I mean honestly <laughs> yeah. this you know that I, I I almost resist it with my faith it's like yeah I mean okay progressive meaning I want to move forward but actually like this I, know. Isn't, I don't need a descriptor of the way I practice my faith so you you're also this incredible businesswoman and I I love ghetto gastro is it I love yes, that and it is. um what are some Hindu values that you think you bring to the kind of social justice lens that Ghetto Gastro has had over the years and which is now expanding? Like, what is there, what are some principles of Hinduism that you can just, like maybe identify as, uh, operational as you imagine the future for such a great Best organization question
2: ever. And I'm probably going to turn it into something for my team at some point. Um, <laughs> I will say, so ghetto gastro has been around for like 10, 15 years, right? Like they, they got started out of the Bronx. Um, it's where all three of the founders are from it's two chefs and an artist. They're very committed to community and breaking barriers and, and educating about racial justice and social justice what brought me to it and where i knew that this had to be the next gig for me was being able to advance that and we had a very shared mission of wanting to make sure communities of color had better access and options when it came to nutrition in particular and i think that one of the greatest parts of hinduism is always a sense of community mm-hmm. and looking out for the greater good right it's a collect- it's a collectivist culture right so um mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that I think I I very much bring to Ghetto Gastro and trying to bring us along. But it's a shared value um, and that, you know, my dudes were already committed to it from the very beginning. And it's nice to be able to amplify that. Um, And I think it's also really nice to be able to think about how maybe this also goes back to the collectivist nature of it all. um, But, you know, when it comes to to generational interlinkage, um, as it is, we're very much talking about and trying to build something for the generation ahead. You know, uh-huh. how can we as as a brand, as a company, you know, build even just generational wealth and build a sustainable company that, you know, will leave a mark and will be, you know, bring better access and options, sure, but also create jobs and create some, you know, economic security and be able to give, um, you know, leave our mark in the world in in a special way that
1: it is. So, I, 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 yeah, that is I mean, it's it's so important. It also, you know, just like the principles of like how you want to act in the world in a way that yeah. will continue you know bring bring good uh to others and to yourself i mean it's like the, there's a very you know a beautiful uh, a beautiful way of like practicing the dharma if i may like use some of your no that's absolutely language. right and you i know, um uh,
2: i i feel quite fortunate to be you know at this stage of of my career in life where I found a job for myself that truly helps me live my values every day.
1: I follow you on social media. And so I saw like, you know, I saw you at the vice president's residence for (laughs) the 50th anniversary of hip hop. And you were doing the food. And I was like, there are some places where I am so envious that someone, that was FOMO for me for sure. And so like, I mean, it was a really,
2: it was a once in a lifetime situation. I'm so grateful to be able to tag along for the day. Um, Vice President Harris hosted a brunch at her residence for in honor of the 50th anniversary of hip hop and Ghetto Gastro curated the menu for the day. But I got to tell you, Paul, it was like the best concert of all time. Incredible energy um, yeah. to be on site, obviously, at the VP's residence for the occasion as it is. Met a lot of really great people and actually, you know, we're heading into an election year and I think my favorite conversation I had that day was with the team from Black Voters Matter. Um Uh we plan on engaging a little bit more, you know, prevalently Uh um in the months to come while so we can ideally have some more light over dark.
1: Right, um, right. Yes. And uh, Vice President Harris has Hinduism in her background. She's like, right. she comes from a bunch of different traditions. I actually think that's like, she's kind of an amazing American story in the sense Absolutely. of like, all these different traditions coming together, married to a Jewish man. I mean, it's really like that family is so incredible. Like, I've actually never asked you about this, like, The Hindu community, do do they identify, um, you know, with having uh, the vice president? Is that a source of pride? So, I
2: mean, I think it depends on who you ask
1: for sure, um,
2: but I've largely seen support I might live in my own bubble. I don't know. But um, yeah, of but course. I every, the,
1: the, no community is is uh, uniform for sure. So yeah, I mean, sure. you can't say like all Hindus and there's not all of anything that. No, that that's, right. Anything. that's right. And so that's like that's right. a, that's a really important point.
2: I do believe she has a Diwali celebration um, every year. I have yet to make that invite list. But, um, you know, I think that oh, also yeah. helps in building uh, community and feeling a sense of camaraderie. And I feel seen in who's out there and how.
1: Wonderful. I mm-hmm. actually think. You know, uh, Vice President Harris, if you're listening, which I assume you are, I know a really great pundit for you, uh, and so like I, I want to make sure that you check out the Purple Pundit Project and uh, and bring uh, Sushma to the um, the residents. Um, I like to end every show with the question, like, what gives you hope right now? We've talked a lot about needing the light in the darkness and all of that. Where do you find that hope? Where do you find that light? Where can you illuminate us into what gives you hope?
2: I'm going to be honest with you. I feel like this has been a really dark year Mm. and a really
1: tough one. And
2: um, one of the only places I'm I'm personally feeling any hope is through my children Mm. and in watching other children. Um, and watching, you know, kids like ours play together and celebrate right. a holiday, you know, and I'm, I love watching my kids get just as excited about learning about Hanukkah and singing dreidel, dreidel, dreidel as they do learning about Hinduism and celebrating Christmas and really embracing their multicultural little selves. And it the best part about watching children just be children is it's a really great reminder of no one is born with hate in their heart.
1: Mm. That's right. Not. That's right. A, a, you know? a great you know a great reminder and it's um you know uh, the wisdom of uh Mahatma Gandhi of uh of of Nelson Mandela of Martin Luther King Jr. all of them you know talking about love and the yeah. the, the need of love and uh to dispel hate and and light to dispel darkness. So tell me like of course, I immediately go to like Happy Diwali, but I'm I know there's a better way to say it. So how do you I? How happy do I, Diwali. You can okay, but but, but but you know, but I want to go a little deeper. How do I get real real? Tell me, tell <laughs> me the the way to say it. Diwali Mubarak. That's so interesting because it's like Ramadan Mubarak. Absolutely. Or yeah. Salim Mubarak. Hello? Yeah. Yeah. This is great. So uh, Diwali yeah. Mubarak. Thank you, sir. And thanks Uh, for having me. This is so fun. Listen, uh, Sushma Devere is a wonderful pundit. You can find out more about her at the Purple Pundit Project. Uh, She is also um, the president of the Ghetto Gastro Company. Sushma, thank you so much. I really am so glad that our lives have uh, come together.
2: Likewise, my friend. It's a pleasure (laughs) to be in community with you.
1: Up next, meditation teacher and author, Sharon Salzberg. Her latest book is Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to The Next Generation podcast at stateofbelief.com slash podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash podcast new podcast. You're listening to The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Sharon Salzberg is a central figure in the field of meditation, a world-renowned teacher and a New York Times best-selling author, bringing Buddhist wisdom, to contemporary challenges. Sharon co founded the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts and has been leading meditation retreats around the world for over three decades. She was with us at the very start of this year and since then has published not one but two vitally important books. Real Life The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom came out in April and couldn't be more timely for how so many of us. Find Ourselves Feeling and Living Right Now. She's also just released Finding Your Way, Meditations, Thoughts, and Wisdom for Living an Authentic Life. Sharon, I am so glad to be talking with you again. Welcome back to The State of Belief.
0: Thank you so much. It's great to see you.
1: Sharon, I'm starting every show right now with the question, how are you doing? And I know that... um, this has to be a t- difficult time for you personally, just
0: like it is for so many of us. How how are you doing? I'm doing okay, thank you. Uh, I felt like in the um, beginning of uh, this terrible period, of, which I, I would mark with uh, Israel and Hamas, um, yeah. it brought up a lot, interestingly enough, from my childhood because uh, when I was nine, I moved in with my grandparents. My mother had died. My father was gone. And um, and living with them, there were any number of relatives kind of coming through who were really, like, pretty crazy. And, uh, and my grandparents would always say, oh, you have to understand. You know, they were hiding under the bed when they watched their, their mother get killed. You have to understand they hid in the closet for so long and you know like uh many of us from you know every ethnicity and and race and so on have uh that kind of inherited trauma and that happened to be mine you know so mm. it it was very much relevant now i'm just like uh i wish i could help ease other suffering you know in a, an effective way and uh it's hard to know what to say what to do if simply being together and uh, honoring that is the way, or, or if there's actually a, a different activity. I did find, uh, I had this conversation with Dan Harris, just we were having dinner together and, and uh, he later put it on Instagram, which I really appreciated, which was, you know, the worst feeling for me is that sense of helplessness. And when I reached that in, in my uh, introspection then I I really feel compelled to do something. And it's something in my own orbit, reaching out to a friend or checking in on somebody or thanking somebody that I've maybe been a little neglectful of, something like that. And uh, and that's an important thing also. Yeah,
1: yeah, I I, I agree completely on the helplessness. It's really is like, so what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Uh, Just, you know, for Interfaith Alliance, one of the things we put out Just in the last week was um, a pledge that we would show up for one another, and that if we saw Islamophobia, if we saw anti-Semitism, no matter who we were, we were going to speak up, we were going to show up, and we weren't going to allow that to destroy our communities in in this country and in our states and in our cities and in our towns. And you know, it's a small thing to take a pledge like that, but it allowed. You know, people, people really responded to it. And they, you know, they said, okay, I'm going to do that, that much I can do, you know, and I, it, it is like these, these small um, things, as well as, you know, be, <clears throat> being engaged in whatever way we feel called to do. And I, you know, I can't mm-hmm. dictate that to other people, because people do have different perspectives. And I, you know, unfortunately, we're in a, a terrible moment. Um, so I, I don't, uh, presume to dictate to people what they will feel called to do right now. Mm-hmm. But I do think if we can all feel called to, to stand against hate and, um and, and make sure that we are not part of raising um the, the violence against people in our other, in our community. So, so I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. So one of the things I wanted to start with was like, Let's talk about the first book that you released uh, this yeah. year, which is like the journey from isolation to openness and freedom. I think right now there is a, you know, I I don't want to frame all of this and. In- terms of the current conflict. I think in general, we have a tendency to isolate whenever we feel scared, whenever we feel uncertain. Um, That can be a community can isolate, but that can be us individually. Talk a little bit about that book and and why you decided to go down um, that path and and along the journey with so many of us who have traveled that path um,
0: around isolation to openness. Well, in part of that introspection, you know, for getting ready to write, was really uh, the question of when do we tend to feel most contracted, we can't breathe, most trapped, the least options. And uh, certainly from the perspective of my meditation training or Buddhist understanding, it's not because of what we're feeling, it's often because of how we relate to what we're feeling. Like we might feel incredible craving, but we don't necessarily feel trapped in it you know, we might feel anger, but we're not defined by it and mm-hmm. overcome by it. Um, that doesn't mean we're ashamed of it or hating it, which is the other problem. Uh, but we have a whole different relationship to it. And and when do we feel open and connected and free? And, and that, you know, really came down to love and loving kindness and compassion and generosity. And uh, so I wanted to write a book about that journey. And and the journey was interesting in itself. Like, what do we take with us on the journey? What do we leave behind? Um, and there's, there's quite a lot, which I've been reflecting on lately uh, in this current time as well, about how do you deal with those difficult feelings? Like, how do you deal with the jealousy and the rage and the fear and, and all of that without falling into one of those two extremes of grabbing onto it and kind of becoming it or the other extreme of feeling so terrible about what you're feeling and trying to hide it or put it down, which never works. So that's one of the, I think the gifts of teachers
1: like yourself um, that given me is like it, Let's examine what we're feeling. Like, it is okay to take a moment and say, oh, what am I actually feeling? And not just say, okay, I'm feeling it. I'm going to run with it. Uh, it's my feelings. My feelings are legitimate. They are, but also, like, can we look at that? Can we take a moment and just, like, do a scan of our yeah, emotions yeah. at this moment and know that that's, that's actually honoring our feelings. It's not denying them. It doesn't have to be a denying. It can be an honoring, but then also like at least get a little bit of a perspective. It seems to me that that's what you're offering in this.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's really important. I mean, one of the things I've been reflecting on sadly recently also is how often we tend to pick up ideology and cling to it to not feel what we're feeling. Mm. Say more about that. say, say, well, it occurred to me at first, very strikingly after 9 11, you know, where I'm a New Yorker, you, you know, you're there. And I was there. I wasn't there that day, but I was there soon after, as soon as I could get in. Uh, and I was teaching. And teaching meant encountering that incredible vulnerability and sense of loss and fear and uh, the sacrifices people were making. And, you know, I met a, a firefighter right at that time who literally lost 20 friends on that day Mm. and he was in the hospital and he got up and ran away from the hospital so we could go to the site and dig you know Mm. so then i went uh out of new york somewhere and uh brought up you know it was so hard being there and so important to be there and and people were bringing up well you know american foreign policy and it's just like I said, wait a minute, that's all true, no doubt. But what does that mean to my firefighter? You know, like, let's sit a moment and realize that. Look at the immensity of, of what's happened for human beings. and Yes. You know, I think and, that that and was. So that I see it here so now important. as well.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that the question of empathy and what is like, yeah. what does it mean to actually stay with it? And yeah. not rush to the first thing, okay? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, and 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 how um, when we rush to the ideology immediately, and and as you say, it can be true. But if you rush to it too quickly, you're denying the experience of what happened. And I think yeah. for many, you know, many Jews I've talked to, that is what was most painful: is that there was so quickly ignoring um, mm-hmm. the pain, and you know, and. And the the devastation, and I, you know, I I was in New York at that time too, and it was it was like an absolute, it, it, you couldn't frankly believe it. And even though, you know, people were saying, okay, this is our foreign policy and all of this, you're just like, yes, and I just saw what I saw, and I the people died who died, and you know, and you can't. So I do think like this idea of empathy, and also now there's a it has to be empathy for what's happening in Gaza, and mm-hmm, and recognition mm-hmm. of the this is equally as devastating, and you can't immediately yeah. erase it because it you want to go you want to go to another ideology to That's explain right. that, but I do think like you know your teaching has been helpful in like let's reflect on what I'm thinking about even like why are you yeah. thinking the things you're thinking, and it gives us just a breath. I think. And that's, uh, you know, I, but I, I love the idea of like, so, you know, let, you know, we, we kind of, (laughs) we were definitely staying a little bit with the isolation now, like the path um, towards openness, I think is what really is, uh, you know, could be so valuable. Like, how can we, how can we keep that path in front of us um, at all times?
0: And especially in this time. Well, one of the things we notice uh, back to difficult feelings, is that we're strong enough actually to be with it in a different way, especially when we don't feel all alone, hmm. you know, when there is some sense of community, although we can do it on our own, but uh, the ability not to, you know, fall into either of those extremes to be different with those feelings leads us to a sense of compassion, not only for ourselves, but for others. Cause hmm. instead of calling those feelings bad, we realize they're painful. And it's so limiting, you know, life can be so much bigger, even when it hurts, you know, it could be so much bigger and more connected and caring. And uh, we discover that when we actually put it into practice and we take little steps, you know, toward kindness. It's right. like checking it out. One of my favorite things in researching the book, that book was uh, talking to, to scientists and researchers about gratitude, because as a quality, it can be so... Diminished, you know, people say, oh, you know, you're telling people to practice gratitude so they'll be satisfied with crumbs coming their way and they won't insist on systems change or better treatment or better work conditions. And, uh, and I didn't personally believe that was true, but I asked, you know, scientists and, and one, for example, David Desteno at uh, Northeastern, he said, no, he said, when people practice gratitude, they get energy. They feel a sense of inner resource, like why try to make change from the most depleted, overwhelmed, exhausted state possible? Why not Mm. have some sense of wherewithal within? Then he went on to say, and besides, people who practice gratitude want to pay it forward. Mm. They want to see other people get a break, get a good chance Mm. at life or uh, better conditions. And so there's generosity that's born. Uh-huh. out of that yeah. gratitude, yeah. you know? I so. love
1: that. My boys go to a school, a public school here in New York City, where they have a policy of gentleness, kindness, and gratitude.
0: Nice. Those are like
1: the principles that are across all of the schools, mm-hmm. like curriculum, they get introduced at all levels. And it's kind of like, it, you know, all of those things lead to, they're, they're interconnected. And if you're going to be a good student, if you're going to be a good you know, person in the world, these are also things that are very helpful. And so I, I, I do think like, I do think gratitude, you know, I, I, I once, you know, wrote something, a piece you know, back in the day uh, about like, what are you thankful for when there's nothing to be thankful for? And, you know, like, you know, face of, of, uh, of a death of a parent, you know, all those things. And then it's just like this affirmation that life is worth living even, and that, mm-hmm. and that you know, you are alive, and you have the potential um, to to be in connection with people. And um, so, as we come up to Thanksgiving, I mean, this is really an important idea. Talk to me a little bit of, um, about this new book, which you know, finding your way. Please. Please. I, I think we're saying, I, I, I think I, I, I was going to say, tell me where to go, but I know I think that's opposite of what it's supposed to do. Yeah. I, you're, you you can not live, but meditations thoughts and wisdom for living an authentic life, finding your way. What is the, tell, tell, what was the spark for this book? And then, and then what, what, what did you learn?
0: The spark for this book, actually, ironically, uh, the, The last day I was in New York in March 2020, not the last day, but when I decided to leave New York in March 2020, uh, I was having lunch uh, with an editor who had asked to to meet with me. And um, I had just taught a class where anxiety was like massive. Um,
1: This This was, by the way, the pandemic was
0: real. In New York City. It was very Lockdown was probably about to happen. I mean, it, it was, was about very, to happen. Was, it had not yet happened. That was a
1: very scary, very scary time in New York.
0: It was a terrible time. And it was March uh, 9th that we had lunch. And and the whole time we were having lunch, uh, she doesn't know this, so I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. You know, uh, She was proposing the idea of a book, a gift book, an illustrated book, a small book, lots of small passages. And, and the whole time we were having lunch, I kept thinking, boy this table these tables are really small (laughs) and nobody really quite knows how you catch these things yeah right i should go up to massachusetts for two weeks and ride it out and yeah uh you know it's it's over and so it was during that lunch i decided to to leave town which is very ironic and i had said to her at the time i don't know you know like it's not really my thing And, and she said no no you should really consider it um Thich Nhat written two, Pema Chodron's written one. They're very accessible to people. It's very available to people. So I came back up here, I'm in Massachusetts right now. And uh, months later, <laughs> I woke up one morning and I thought maybe she was right. You know, like uh, attention spans are not great right now. There's so much going on, uh, so much unexpected, like maybe just a, a book you can pick up and read like one paragraph would be really useful. And so that, that was the birth of the book. I called her and Uh, I said, he's still interested. Great. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, the idea of,
1: I do think the idea of finding your way, it's like a, just that, just that idea in life is like, what am I meant to do? How can I recognize guideposts along the way? Um, You know, and, and, the the idea of an authentic life. Can you say a little bit about like what does authenticity mean to you?
0: Uh I think it means something different than the conve- to me, than the conventional understanding, perhaps. Because sometimes we use the word authentic to mean um reckless, you know, like if somebody can be mean, but they're honest about it. You know, they don't they're not fluffing it up or pretending to be other than mean spirited and, and we think, oh what an authentic person, but We don't think, uh, really, is that the greatest potential (laughs) which one can manifest? You know, like how small are you defining life? Um, And so I I think of it more as a sense of wholeness, Hmm. that we recognize our own wholeness, um, the capacity we have, even if we're not living up to it fully, uh, for love, for connection, so on, for wisdom. And, And we're bringing it forth to some extent. So... Uh, I, I'm also I'm taken with that often, like sometimes even in films or biographies of, you know, we see people who just like drove their staff crazy and were awful. And, and we say well, they were so authentic. And you think, well, <laughs> maybe there was something else. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, authentic.
1: Yeah. It, it, I, I like the idea of authentic as whole, because, it, you know, if you bring in if you bring up all of you, then that's the only thing you can do. You know what I mean? that, yeah. And all yeah. of you, no one else is all of you. Yeah. You know yeah. What I mean? So I, I, I like the idea of that wholeness. Like no one else is all of Sharon Salzberg. No one else is all of Paul Rauschenbusch. No one else is all of the listeners who are listening right now. And so that's what it means to be authentic. What are some of the, like, Throughout the book, I know you have a lot of different meditations and and, uh, wisdom. And what are some of the pieces that you most want um, our listeners to hear, like, as they're trying to find their way right now?
0: Uh, I think things like uh, loving kindness for oneself, Hmm. you know, which so many people dismiss as like uh, self-centered or laziness, you know, like, yeah, you know, but... Actually, the engine for learning, for making progress, for moving forward doesn't seem to be like a denunciation of oneself in a harsh, punitive environment. It really is a kind of self-compassion or or self-love that can recognize this is the nature of things. We fall down and we can pick ourselves up or we can let others help us up and we start over. And every day, you know, we make a course correction or we... We need to not just dwell in our mistake forever. I mean, you yeah, know, we need to recognize whatever we've done or said or refrained from saying or doing and lessons learned or maybe to make amends, but we need to go on and uh, rather than be stuck in a kind of lacerating self hatred. And so yeah, I, um,
1: I think that that, like, just stopping that with the, there's a like the, I, you know, I, You know, I just got to take time to love me. And it sometimes comes across as like, okay, um, more narcissism, you know, (laughs) but that's but actually it is a discipline to like to not beat yourself up. Uh, and not listen to those voices in our head that are really saying like, oh, oh you know, and just allow yourself to, to the discipline. I think you know love is a discipline if you're exhibiting it towards someone else. You know, I mean, it, sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's not so easy. And I think mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, you know, practicing loving kindness, the way that that is phrased is really the right phrasing. Cause it requires like that kind of, you know, intentionality mm-hmm. and also like recognizing that this isn't carte blanche for everything I do is perfect. Uh, and rather it's just saying it's okay. It's okay to keep on moving, keep on mm-hmm. improving. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's a really, really important. Is there any other bit of wisdom that goes, that couples with that, that, um, around finding your way?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, there's so much, you know, there's just like, uh, I think, like you, um, spirituality is not confined to like an activity we do once a week or even every day. You know, if we're meditating, it's it's the nature of our lives when we're connected. And mm. and so I like to think of life itself as a kind of creative medium. Mm. You know, I you may that. not feel you're artistic or you know whatever, but you are. You're, you're creating a life every mm. day. We have choice. We have. Priorities, we have, you know, remembering what we really care about. It's like all those conversations you may be engaged in where you're not really listening or you don't really care, or, or you, you have a, a very strong image of the other person, not even from acquaintance, but maybe someone else told you that they're boring or they're hmm. uh, whatever. And so you're not really taking them in. And then you realize that, and here too, you can start over. Realize I'm distracted. Let me come back here. Let me gather my attention. Let me really listen. Or, gosh, I'm holding this really rigid idea of this person, never having met them before. Yeah. You know, yeah. let me see if I can loosen the grip of that and and actually be there. And we have so much potential every single day.
1: Well, I I I, I want to reference uh, the tenth anniversary of the re-release of your book, Love Your Enemies. Yeah, that this you is my wrote, big book here. <laughs> yeah. It all actually feels of a piece. So talk to me about that, that book, first of all, and then how you imagine it playing into our, our broad politic. We have so much that's weighing on us right now from you know the things going on in our own country, which are very distressing, um, the things going on around the world, which are also very distressing, and then it is the most if to me. It feels like the most natural thing in the world to begin to describe people as my enemy and to and to begin to act with their mm. um, their demise in mind. And I'm curious how you suggest that we proceed and I know you feel this too, doesn't say, okay, everyone is fine. Everything is fine. You know, we're just going to love one another and kumbaya is fine. Um, you know, we have things that we have to, we have to make sure are right in the world, but what does it mean to love your enemies in a moment where there's so much pushing us to, to not love them and to Mm -hmm. activate against them?
0: Well, this is a really crucial question and, and always has been, you know, um, whether it's within a family or the world stage, you know, it's not always easy. Uh, And the question I get asked probably more than any other in teaching loving kindness meditation is why, why would I bother? You know, here's this kind of person who despises people like me. They don't feel I should exist. They don't have the right to exist or be equal to them. You know, why in the world should I be cultivating loving kindness? them, and so it demands a tremendous exploration, a genuine exploration of what we mean by love, what we mean by loving kindness, you know, if it means giving in, if it means acquiescing, if it means approving, you know, then it's ridiculous. So well, why get up any earlier in the morning, you know, to try to <laughs> deepen that, you know, you don't have to, uh, but it could mean something else. And I think we also live in a time in general, where it's a real degradation of an understanding of love. You know, and so I, I've often wrestled with the saying of the Buddha, which was echoed, of course, uh, in a slightly different language, um, formed by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When the Buddha said, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. And it's a wrestling, you know, it's like you come to some situation, you think here, here too, you know, what could that possibly look like? And uh, so it's that kind of discernment and even struggle to try to understand what do I mean by love? Um, and I don't mean approval or any of those things, you know, and I think only the Buddha did either, uh, you know, but some kind of recognition of connection that, that this is genuinely true and uh, that if I were in the circumstance of some other person with that vision of life and the um, meaning, what makes life meaningful, I might act in a similar way. That does not mean you don't take action against them or to protect yourself or, uh, we do, you know, like that's discernment, that's understanding, that's wisdom often coming into play and balance, like what about compassion for yourself as well as for somebody else, you know, so. Uh, that was one of the understandings that was really important for me that to have a heart full of love does not define a certain course of action, like saying yes or letting them move back mm-hmm. in or giving them more money or right or whatever right, 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 right and then i I come back to bottom line is that I come back to uh again, you know, from my Buddhist background, uh the Buddha's saying they say that the Buddha first taught loving kindness meditation is the antidote to fear. And so bottom line for me is asking myself, was this a situation where my being less afraid? Not not afraid in a wise way, but less afraid in that kind of massive, overwhelming way. Is this a situation where my being less afraid would be helpful? And I never come up with a no, (laughs) you know, so I think, oh, let's see what it might look like here.
1: Wow. Oh, that's, that's so helpful. I, I, I think that that is um, all of that about, you know, connection and, you know, just recognizing humanity, which is really hard uh, sometime when you have decided to, to demonize and, um, and put them as the enemy and, um, but recognizing humanity and, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's so helpful what you've been saying. I, I'm ending a lot of my conversations right now by asking um, guests what gives them hope, and I'd love to ask you that right now.
0: Uh, I have a lot of faith in the resilience of the human spirit, and so that gives me hope, and my meditation practice certainly gives me hope, and it just keeps helping me open and... And uh, youth gives me hope. I want to see more photos of your kids in their Halloween costumes. <laughs> and uh, life is happening, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Life is happening. I love that. That's your next book title, by the way. Uh, you know. <laughs> Thank you. I'm gonna write that down. Sharon Salzberg is a globally known meditation teacher and the best-selling author of many books. Most recently, Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom, and Finding Your Way, Meditations, Thoughts, and Wisdom for Living an Authentic Life. On top of that, her book, Love Your Enemies, co-authored with Robert Thurman, has just been re-released in a 10th anniversary edition. Sharon, thank you so much for being with us again on The State of Belief. It is so good to talk to you. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for The State of Belief this week. Be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com newpodcast new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping The State of Belief growing. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And if you're getting something out of this show, share it with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief, and share the state of belief with the people in your networks. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. The State of Belief is produced by Ray Kerstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week, I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.